1: Hello everyone and welcome back to New Books in History. My name is Yana Byers and I'm here today with Professor Carol Dyehouse, Professor Emerita of History at the University of Sussex. She's the author of numerous articles relating to women and higher education, as well as the monographs Girl Trouble, Panic and Progress in the History of Young Women, 2013, to That Party. 2013 said books and glamour women history and feminism also from said books in 2010 and then two earlier publications from rutledge uh, students a gendered history and no distinction of sex women in british universities 1870 to 1939 hello carol hello jana so uh, how are you today are you in sussex i am in a very cold sussex um
0: but it's it's sunny <laughs> so i'm not complaining excellent wonderful
1: um all right so um, I see a pretty clear and steady progression from the 1995 No Distinction of Sex straight through to Heartthrobs, but that might not be clear to our, everyone in our audience. So would you like to comment on how, this, how your latest work follows the trajectory of your earlier work?
0: Yes. Well, I'm a feminist historian, fairly obviously, and i spent most of my life in universities writing academic and hopefully scholarly books. And those books in the main have focused on a history of women in education and women in universities, those kinds of subjects, although I'm broadly interested in most aspects of modern British women's history. But about 10 years ago, I thought, "Mm, I'd quite like to try and write books that appeal to a a bigger audience that weren't just intended for scholarly readers and, and that would you know, chance their arm a bit more and look at subjects which well perhaps a bit untried. <laughs> so the book on glamour is subtitled Um Women and Feminism, Women History Feminism. But it it's an attempt to do something quite different and to look at well, whether glamour is oppressive to women, whether it's always been oppressive to women. It was also an attempt at, you know Uh, an opportunity to do fun stuff like look at vintage clothes stores and go around perfume museums and look at textile and clothing museums and the history of makeup and stuff like that. So all that kind of material culture (laughs) of femininity, which I wanted to look at as a feminist and wasn't prepared, I think, to see as just oppressive, as just putting women down and turning them into objects. So Glamour um, was a new venture, and i really enjoyed writing it and i found it very intellectually stimulating to think about the ways in which glamour had been sometimes enabling for women if you look at you know the film stars of the 1930s they're very powerful women they're not exactly oppressed or totally subjects of the ma- objects of the male gaze you know um so I wanted to do something different. And then that led on to the book on Girl Trouble, which was an attempt to do a very broad focus book, looking at whether women had benefited or been reduced by modern history. And it sort of had to take on a lot of moral panics around girlhood, you know, from the white slave, the alleged white slave traffic of the 1900s of the suffrage period, right the way through to Ladets and... and, um, you know, female chauvinist pigs and so on, allegedly, um, in, in the 1990s. So I, I, I wanted to do a, a, something again that would be very broad. I mean, in universities you tend to focus on smaller scholarly things, and I just wanted to be a bit more swashbuckling. <laughs> and, and if I want, if I should say, that,
1: oh, I just God, yeah.
0: heartthrobs was. It, I mean, that was interesting. To, I mean, when I gave when I gave um, book talks on glamour. A lot of gay men said, why aren't you looking at male glamour? And, you know, I, I thought you're right. I mean, I touched in oh, glamour yeah. on the glamour of, say, RAF pilots in those gorgeous pale blue uniforms, you know, with silver wings mm-hmm. on their, like, enormous oh, that. Enormous yeah. kind of glamour uh, associated with airline pilots in the earlier part of the century. But I didn't fully look at male glamour. Um, and I was thinking a bit about that. And then I was thinking, I mean, the real takeoff point for the book on heartthrobs was John Berger's um, Ways of Seeing. You know, John Berger, the art critic, who did a, a, a very well-received TV series, mm-hmm. but he also did a book called Ways of Seeing, which was published, I think, about 1972. And he said things which became central to the sort of feminist um, way of thinking about things and a feminist canon, if you like, almost. He said that um, men look at women. And women see themselves through the eyes of men and that idea that women have traditionally been the objects of the male gaze and can only see themselves as objectified through the eyes of men bothered me. I mean, it has its virtues. It's a really helpful way of looking at things, but it's not the whole story. And I thought, what if we reverse that and look at how women look at men? Because you don't actually have to spend very long in the company of other women, do you, to know that they talk about men quite effusively. And, and so I thought, well, what what mm. happens is often, often, yes, guess, in many ways. Um, and I thought, well, what happens if you look historically at that? You look at how women have been able to talk about men, in what kinds of areas they've talked about men, and how, um, and that sort of gets you thinking about the nature of female desire and whether that is culturally constructed or something innate, you know. And that's what heartthrobs is really about. It's an attempt to look at changing fashions in men, the changing, to look at the, the way desirable masculinity has changed since, say, the late 18th century. That makes sense. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, there is something that is some kind of inadvertently feminist, just simply subjecting, or perhaps directly pointedly feminist, and subjecting um, yeah. you know, men to the female gaze, and looking at how that's been how that's been done. It's, it's really delightful. It's a great idea. Um, and it's so much fun. So such a fun <laughs> book. Um, so one of the things that really, st- <laughs> really struck me uh, with looking at it was how much fun it must have been to do the research for this. Although I'm thinking maybe purses and bags might have been <laughs> even cooler, but... So would you like to talk to me? <laughs> I mean, it wasn't just an opportunity to look at sort of
0: sexy men, although that was one of the sort of fringe benefits, wasn't it? Look at, look at men on the, the um, It
1: certainly didn't hurt, um, did it? You
0: know, it? The research was enormously fun <laughs> because in looking at men themselves, I mean, I, I mainly, well, I, I looked look at popular fiction a lot. um, And I look at film, obviously, massively, um, particularly the early years of cinema when Rudolph Valentino really established himself as the first sort of massive heartthrob on screen. I mean, before that, you have heartthrobs like Byron or List, you know, who allegedly had women swooning. Well, um, List had women collecting his cigar stubs and sticking them down their Fronts, didn't he? And swooning because they. <laughs> I mean, he's often thought I was one of the first kind of major heartthrobs in history. Byron had women, you know, besotted and ostensibly well behaved middle class women writing to him, you know, offering to meet him under the bushes in Hyde Park and stuff like that. I mean, it was. And again a phenomenon but but with rudolph valentino you get the first massive screen heartthrob and it's so interesting because men hated him um you know he was denounced roundly in america for being puffy and not being white and waspish and and, and so on and i think men were very shocked by the fact that that women you know went
1: crazy about him and what intrigued me about that is in a sense his. I mean, he's also like, there, there's an ethnicity issue there as well, right? He's not proper.
0: Absolutely. He's not proper at all. He's um, he's a ladies' man. And that phrase in itself is fascinating, isn't it? Because ladies' man usually means, um, you know, not masculine enough, not a proper red-blood male. But, of course, you know, that raises questions about whether women always wanted red-blooded males in the way that men thought they did. <laughs> and when I think back about Rudolf Valentino, I mean, he did in a sense reshape ideals of masculinity because although he caused all this trouble, I mean, uh, because he was so successful with women, um, he sort of makes men rethink fashions. And you find the fashion for sort of, you know, slick, slicked back hair becomes fairly universal and and you know, there's a, there's a brand of condoms which you can still find advertised on the on the web called Shake condoms. You know, which, were, <laughs> yeah. um,
1: oh. which
0: kind of? I mean, at the time they were manufactured, you can still find old ones if you Google them. <laughs> and. Um, Oh my God, <laughs> well, the that's amazing. In which they were packaged anyway. I'm not sure about the genuine articles, but what I mean was that the condoms were advertised yeah. as being shape condoms because, in a sense, Rudolf Valentino had redefined masculinity in the shake with all the associations of, of that came from, you know, the very a uh, powerful way he enacted that in the in the film The Shake, you know, which was based on E.M. Hull's novel, but um, it was a, an, a fantastic success of reshapes masculinity it, it challenges people to rethink what desirable masculinity is so that way women affect ideals of masculinity through their consumerism you know
1: sure that's interesting that's interesting yeah I'm sure there's an article to, re- to be written about the sheik versus the trojan condom <laughs> convinced that would make it <laughs> someone else's yes, job exactly. Oh, that's really fun. Well, you also got to, well, you watched a lot of films and read a yes. lot of books too, right? Yes. Um, the kind of things, the kind of books you're supposed to feel guilty oh, about yes. reading. Too. Well, that was it. I mean, when I was at
0: school, I didn't get to read stuff that the, the teachers disapproved of, like, you know, Catherine Windsor's Forever Amber. I mean, <laughs> other people read those. <laughs> and, um,
1: and right, yeah.
0: you know, I was supposed to be a sort of scholarly girl and and didn't you know to do that but um in my in my dotage as it were i was able to read all this stuff i missed out on the young girl because i was so serious minded and to treat it academically um you yes. know because that it, it is it is fun and i really delved down into this what you might call the pond life of popular literature <laughs> <You know? laughs> Um, because, because, oh, really? Again, because yeah. what's interesting um if you're a social and cultural historian is the impact that these texts had um for instance when I started writing heartthrobs um somebody said to me or well, a friend of mine who's a writer called Imogen Robertson she said she said have you you you'll obviously look at Charles Garvis and I said who?" <laughs> She said, Garvis, have you not seen his book? And I was embarrassed right. after, you know, 30 years of teaching social history and kind of popular literature and stuff. I thought, no, I haven't. So I started to look up Charles Garvis and he was massively, massively, massively popular. I mean, he made a fortune out of his popular writing, which was either under his own name or under a, a sort of female pseudonym. But they were romances and they 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 have masses to say about what women want in men um and the fact that they sold so prolifically means that he hit a nerve so i was able to kind of read all this kind of thing and and then
1: it, it gets you to rethink i've never heard of this man now i, I have an assignment for later um uh, oh, charles garvis oh, that's brilliant, G-A-R-V-I-C-E. Oh, right. oh, brilliant. <laughs> um Okay, so uh, what, what do you, would you tell me is your overall argument? What, what, if I have a t- one take up, what is it? Ah, okay,
0: the, what I think was my central sort of theme is that, and it was something I discovered in the, in the course of doing the book, is that fashions in masculinity have to do with um, women's social position at any particular time. You see, if you look on the surface of it, I, when I started, I thought, well, mm, okay, so what kinds of blokes appear massively in the literature, say, at the end of the 19th century? And hardly surprisingly, they're sort of imperial adventurers and, you know, kind of soldiers and things like that. And you can understand all that. And then, by the, as we mentioned earlier, you know, the, the RAF pilot comes in, in in the 20s and 30s and so on as, as a big thing. And then doctors in the 1950s, you know, the... the, the um, popularity of hospital romances, you know, doctor meets nurse. and uh, is just huge. I mean, Mills and Boone couldn't find enough authors to write hospital romances in the 50s. So at some level, you th- you think, oh, yeah, well, you know, what it is about sexy men is that they reflect the fashions of the time. And then you think, well, that's, it's not all that, is it? You know, there's something more going on. And I think I decided in the course of writing that what if the more that is going on is what's happening to women at any particular time. So that, for instance, the fashion for Arab sheiks, you know, which comes around the Valentino period and stays, if you look at girls' magazines through the thirties, there's just no shortage of, you know, white rajah stories or, you know, desert, desert princes who carry women off to their tents as Rudolph Valentino did in, in the shake, you know, I mean, it's, it sticks and sticks at a fantasy level. So, um, I think what I found more interesting is how you can answer the question of how changes in women's social position lead to fashions for different kinds of men. Um, that's the main argument of the book, I think.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's um, sounds good. Yeah. I like it. Uh, so you yeah, touch on several. You more. No. Oh, I'm sorry. Can we
0: say a bit more about that? It's just, uh, well a bit more about that is that as women become consumers they can express their desires so for, it's the fact that they consume cheap romantic fiction um, you know from the Mills and Boom period on really or the, the circulating libraries on um, into well up until the present day um, although a lot of it's web based now but you know it, it's the fact that they become consumers I mean it's the women who go to cinemas some women went. Allegedly two or three times a week when cinema was at its height of fashion, um, and it's so it's because women's behaviour changes as consumers that certain kinds of masculinity become fashionable because they can express it, and then I think the way you understand doctors in the fifties is that it's a little bit of a of a kind of backwards trend, because after the Second World War, there was a sort of back to the home, glorifying domesticity sort of movement. And if you think about, you know, you think about young women, if you're going to choose a bloke to marry, and, you know, what do you go for? You want to go for somebody with prospects, you want to go for somebody maybe who's stable, who's professionally got good status, who's going to be a stable, reassuring sort of presence through a long life. And who better than to marry a young doctor?
1: You know? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, respectable, respectable smart. smart.
0: Yeah, and it was a good bet to marry a doctor. And that's why I think you get all those doctor romances and the doctor movies at that time, you know. So I think behind every fashion in masculinity, there's something altering in women's social position and it was that relationship which I think becomes the main theme of the book really
1: right um sure and as women are able to express that as consumers and there's a response there <clears throat> oh fantastic so there's a few uh if you, the book is organized according to uh, some of the archetypes really I think we can call them right and uh I, w- I was wondering if you would like to talk about a few of those particularly I love the chapter once upon a dream Oh, that's about the Prince Charming is it? it? Um, Yeah, I love that. And it takes me back to the countless hours I spent with Disney movies and like fairy tales. Yeah. Oh, I was a sucker for (laughs) that. Once Upon a
0: Dream, yes. Well, that's um, that obviously immediately makes you think of Disney. And the the thing about that chapter, I kind of forget what I put in it now, but um, I got (laughs) very much the kind of – this sort of Prince Charming archetype, you know, which, which is. Obviously, in Cinderella, but gets extended very much. With, I think, if you look at the, the pictures in the book, there's a wonderful one of Rudolf Valentino's Monsieur <laughs> Um having a sort of wet shirt moment almost. You know, <laughs> instead of his gold braid and his and his ruffles, you know, you suddenly see him with a naked torso, and, and yet he's still got his powdered wig on. You
1: know, um, actually, that's I didn't oh, <laughs> um, want to be caught without that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the construction of the prince charming and you know there, there are romantic novelists from barbara cartland um to Georgette right. hare who i think is brilliant by the way i mean that was Georgette hare was somebody else i never read at school because she was frowned upon um by you know our very scholarly teachers <laughs>
1: we were a very really academic sure, schools,
0: and you just didn't read this stuff but boy do i read it these days <laughs> 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 um, because it so much. And actually Georgia Hare is extremely witty and, and um and a very good read. Um and I would oh, not, you know, she's not the bottom of the pond when we look at pond life literature. But I do look at pond life literature so <laughs> You know. Um what, uh, what I what I was gonna say was was just that um Oh, I've almost forgotten. (laughs) Hang on, it'll come back, it'll come back. Oh, yes. Um, The contempt with which the literary establishment has often um, loaded its remarks against women. I mean, if you look at Q.D. Leavis, who was married to F.R. Leavis, you know, and was a critic obviously, Um, she sneers at what she calls typists' romances um, or, you know, mill girls' romances. And those kinds of denunciations, which are everywhere, if you look at the history of 20th century literature, they carry a sort of double burden of contempt, don't they? I mean, it's contempt for what women like to read on one hand, but it's also contempt for working class women. It's a kind of class snobbery because when you talk about a mill girl or a typist or a, you know, or a servant girl, you, you're kind of putting them down for their class as well as their gender. And I think, you know, that we can learn a great deal as social historians from examining the fantasies of young working class women.
1: Oh, God, yeah, certainly. I mean, what's what's important, and the idea as well, just the reminder that um, the the dream is to be kind of carried away. It, you have this life that's not too pleasant, and then you've been carried off and you, by your prince, you know, this... Perfect Prince Charming. Yes. We probably don't have we so know. many princes these days. <laughs> you know, okay, though. Do you know, uh, I don't know how much this plays, but there's a channel in the U.S. called the Hol- the Hallmark Channel. Uh-huh. And it is just lady television, and it's, ma- it's mocked relentlessly. But um, starting sometime in mid-November, they start playing these Christmas movies. Mm. And they're the exact same thing. And you kind of like admitting that you like them. It's you admit to a guilty pleasure. But I just, just this morning, as I was leaving my house, I saw an ad for the third Christmas Prince movies. Mm. Like there was yeah. the Christmas Prince and then the royal wedding. And now it's she's having a baby. And it's some like American, not too interesting human who goes to a fictional car- kingdom, meets a prince, and they fall in love.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's
1: dashing. I mean, this is still there's a lot of power to that. Still, well, that's because so
0: many women are fairly powerless. I think. I mean, I don't think that's the entire story, but I think one of the one of the ways we can understand the pull of this is that if you've got a kind of fairly boring, mundane, or even poverty-struck and grim existence, then you know dreams of transformation are what keep you going, aren't they? you, again and again, it's kind of scattered literature and it's hard to kind of pull together. But I try. Obviously, after you've written the book, other stuff comes up. And I, I came across um, just one of those sort of slim autobiographical, you know, myself when young texts not so long ago, um, written by a woman called Joyce Story, who lived in Bristol. And she has a passage about how miserable she was in elementary school in the in the 1930s, and she said she used to sit in the playground and just fantasise that Rudolf Valentino or somebody like him was coming on a big white horse and he would carry her off, you know, and make her life wonderful. And this notion that you could be transported and your life can be transformed is a very powerful um, fantasy and a form of consolation for people who are finding life hard work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean... I. I think that, that that it's it's getting the hold is getting less isn't it? because it, you know if you compare the early Disney movies to the later ones, if you compare Sleeping Beauty, Snow White and Cinderella for instance with say Moana and um, and Frozen one, you can see that things have changed quite massively um, I mean they're awfully wet those early Disney. Eras. <laughs> Get carried off by princes. They really are hopeless, aren't they? I mean,
1: <laughs> no personality. They're just they're these little dresses. Yeah, well, that's you know. Right. Well,
0: the suppose- princes don't have much personality either, do they? I mean, in a sense, they're ciphers because all you all you need to do is gesture in the direction of you know servant girl. Is transformed by Fairy Godmother and Prince Carries her away. And we all know, I mean, you know, how you probably could express the whole fantasy in about you know, six words. Sure. <laughs> absolutely it's so familiar. Yeah. But I'm Very not sure right. it's got so much hold today, you know, because princesses have got rather more about them now.
1: <laughs> you yeah, absolutely.
0: Imagine, imagine Megan having that. Well, maybe she did have that fantasy. Who knows? You know, she's too, you know, they have too much personality these days. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah. It doesn't stop but the fantasy, true. but it doesn't mean... It does mean you probably check your own fantasies a bit, don't you?
1: Yeah, I suppose. And there, I mean, just it is true that women have considerably more opportunities than ever. So, you know, there's kind of I, I teach as you know, I'm teaching twenty year olds, and they talk about being their own prince, like making their Good for own them. Yeah, Good absolutely. For them. Right absolutely okay it doesn't seem fancy though we'd
0: all like life to be perfect we'd all like, you know i mean the thing is that you could be you know somebody carries you off and puts you in their castle i mean you'd get pretty bored soon wouldn't you
1: (laughs) definitely absolutely i'm like there's there's probably not even theater that sounds like no fun No, and I I
0: really, really love clothes, but I mean, there's only, you can't spend your entire
1: life with just changing <laughs> from dress to dress. No. Just getting dressed up, you know. You no, would get terribly boring, terribly bored. Okay. So I would like to ask, go to my final important, super important question. Who's your favorite of the heartthrobs?
0: Ah! <laughs> always ask that like probably, um, I probably I probably asked to answer differently each time um, when I was growing up I had a thing about Rudolf Nureyev <laughs> I, I think that <laughs> I think it was just that masculine grace I mean when you see him in corsair pirouetting across the stage but that's interesting too isn't it that um that, oh dear sorry this um that's interesting too because um women do like male dancers and that's a challenge to a lot of conventional ideas of masculinity there's something about you know grace and and expression um that hasn't always sat easily with masculinity but it's something women often go for
1: Hmm, that's all right that's fascinating What fun <laughs> Oh, wonderful. I love this book. Um, I had so much fun reading it. These interviews are funny. Um, And I just, it's a joy. I get to read all kinds of different fun stuff. And so I uh, cannot recommend it enough. Uh, Did you have fun writing it? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So what?
0: So what's next? Ah, well, <laughs> I I think I might sort of develop this a bit further to to, um, to actually look at the transition from Cinderella to Frozen, looking at um, at the different patternings of love lives, not so much, you know, men that one fantasizes about, but uh, that women have fantasized about historically, but the shifts in sort of, um, what has been desired in terms of relationships with men and, and family structures and, and so on. A, a sort of broad social history of women from 1950 to um, up to 2013 because I think ha- um, Frozen 1 <laughs> will be my cut-off point. I have seen Frozen 2, but, <laughs> but I think it was Frozen 1 that is the... Um, the turning point.
1: I uh I think uh, I that that sounds that sounds right. I mean like obviously you're the expert on this one. Um but I think I mean that just sits properly and what a fun thing to think about too like the Cinderella is boring. <laughs> She's so good. <laughs>
0: yeah. uh, anyway, but I
1: mean American
0: versions <laughs> are a bit different from British versions actually.
1: You know, that's yeah that is also true yeah. and um and uh, i minute. Mean, the older folk tales are a whole nother matter but that's that's fascinating well that's great so thank you very much i've spent uh, i've taken up quite enough of your time so uh um i will we'll just close is there anything else that i desperately need to know
0: no thank you for talking to me yana I, I enjoyed talking to you
1: thank you so much carol it was great